0: Open your Bibles to Philippians 3, please. I made a a rare visit to Grizzly Tools a couple of weeks ago, and even more rare, I I found a bargain that looked like it belonged in my shop. I actually found two things, but one of them was a a 10-inch saw blade for my miter saw, and it was less than half price. And I thought, well, boy, I've got to have that, so I bought it, took it home, and and I actually do need a a, a blade for my miter saw because I tried to cut some aluminum with my miter saw you ever done that? (laughs) you have to be very careful Uh, it worked out pretty good a couple of times and then one time there was kind of this explosion and I kinda jumped back and counted my fingers one two three four five six seven eight nine and a half yes they're all there (laughs) But the aluminum looked like this. So I kind of dulled my blade. But I got this blade home from Grizzly, and I was looking at the box, and, you know, a certain number of teeth, and, and it's made for a certain kind of cut. And then it had pictures of tools, and it had no signs through some tools, and yes, through others, and mine was a no. It was the wrong blade for my saw. So I thought, well, maybe my old blade can be, can be sharpened. And so I took my blade to a sharpening shop, oh yeah, no problem, we can sharpen that, and it's going to cost less than half of what the blade was. So I took the blade back to Grizzly, and, and uh, now I'm in, you know, be in good shape when I get that home. Value is a personal thing. You know the old saying, one man's junk is another man's treasure? That's where garage sales and the restore come from. I drive down the street yesterday, and you know it's spring because people are having yard sales. They're just waiting for the sun to shine, and boom, they're out there. And, and somebody is out there buying the old stuff from those people. Now, I know they've got a house full of old stuff themselves. But they're going to buy their old stuff, and then they're going to go home and take their old stuff and put it on sale. Value what's important, what's valuable. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul today is going to talk to us about how valuable Christ was to him. I would like to read the passage we looked at last week and then move on to this week, so we'll start in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He used those words to talk about false teachers. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anybody else thinks he could have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ In verses 1 through 7, Paul reflected on his earlier life. Now, he didn't say, I have confidence in my flesh for salvation, but he said, if anybody could have it, it would be me. And he elaborated his his religious and and biographical heritage, which in some people's thinking in that day gave him the right to say, I have confidence that I'm going to go to heaven because of all these things I am and that I've done. But he says, no, I've given up all of that To believe in Christ. And now today in verses 8 through 11, he's going to say, "Why why did he do that? Why is it so important, so valuable to him? And the first reason we're going to find in verse 8 is this. Paul believed that knowing Christ was incomparably valuable because it brought him relationship with God. In verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. We understand that Christ is both the path to God and God himself and he came into relationship with God. What was Paul's pride and joy before he knew Christ? Christ. Well, verses 4 through 6 that we just read elaborates his Jewishness. We could add this verse to it right here. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. What's this talking about? In that day, they didn't have colleges or seminaries like we would have today where it's sort of an independent school and everybody kind of goes there and studies, there would be a man who would be a well-known and well-respected teacher and he would have a group of students, to our way of thinking, apprentices, a small group who connected themselves to him. That's actually where the idea of a disciple and a teacher, those words that Jesus used with his disciples, that's where it comes from, In that ancient day and so Paul said I sat at the feet of Gamaliel now the reason he said sat at the feet and and the reason I'm pointing at the chair is in that day if you were the teacher you sat it was a sign of authority Uh, you know a number of times when Jesus taught he sat down remember Mary and Martha and Mary came and sat at his feet there was a certain amount of humility being demonstrated you're the teacher I'm the student the teacher would sit, the people would sit at his feet. and So when he says, I sat at the feet of, I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, he's saying, I went with this one teacher. Now, in our day, that would be similar to saying, I have a law degree from Harvard. okay, Or, or whatever prestigious institute in your field of thinking, you know, a, a science degree from MIT or uh, whatever it might be. You know, in Washington State, you might say, I have a law degree from the University of Washington Law School or something like that. The Apostle Paul went to the best teacher that there was, and he was brought up in the strictness of his father's law, the father's law. And so he took pride in that. He took joy in that. He looked back and said, this is something. But when he came to faith in Christ, look at verse 8, he said, I count all things as loss for Christ. Not just the religious activities that he did, but the schooling that he had. And perhaps as he looked at family life or possessions or all of those things, look at the word all things in verse 8. Do you know what that means? What do you think that means, class? What? It means all things. No trick in the Greek language there. Could the Apostle Paul be saying, food and clothes and a home and a retirement fund and a family and a reputation and a vacation and the esteem of colleagues and importance in the world and physical safety? Could he be saying all of those things to me are like rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He said, that's all of the stuff of life. And then here's knowing Christ. Now, he didn't say, I don't want to eat anymore. He didn't say, I don't want to wear clothes and be in a warm place. But he said, when I look at the stuff of life, whether it was my world-class education or all the religious things I did or or the things that I've had to sacrifice like safety and and, and being hungry and and things like that, when I look at that and I look at Christ, I say, that's a bag of garbage. Wow, that's that's a radical kind of commitment. Here's some examples in the scripture of people who didn't see it that way. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas was somebody who worked with Paul, and it came to a point in time where Demas said, Cost is too great. I'm going back. I'm going back over here. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, does not receive us. John the Apostle wrote a letter to a church. And there was a man in that church who kept the church from getting the letter. Now how arrogant do you have to be to do that? That man loved the preeminence. Matthew 26, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, then all of the disciples forsook him and fled. This is from that time in the garden when Jesus is being arrested and they have a little confrontation with the Roman soldiers. Peter cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus said, No, we're not going to fight these guys. He puts the ear back on. And, and, and Jesus said, Who are you here for? And he said, I'm here for Jesus. And he said, Then let these others go. And they arrested Jesus. But look what it says. They forsook him and fled. If you read the Gospel of Mark, it says one of them ran away naked because somebody got a hold of his coat and he ran away naked. Peter, just a few hours later, comes into the court where Jesus, the, the, the courtyard, where, and he can see Jesus where they're abusing Jesus and, and he denies Jesus three times. Why? There can only be one reason, to save their skin. They said, my skin is more important than standing up for Jesus. One more. Peter talking about false teachers. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. This is an Old Testament story where a prophet took money to say bad things about the people of Israel. So it's called the wages of unrighteousness. So instead of following God, he loved money. He said, I've got to have this money. The Apostle Paul compared the stuff of life to knowing Christ, and he said there's no comparison. Look at verse 8. In the New King James, there's a word used which is excellence. I count all things as loss for the excellence of knowing Christ. And it literally is the word surpassing or surpassingness. In other words, you know, if if we were to put things on a scale and say, here's the stuff of the world and here's Christ, and we think, well, the scale will go like this. No, the Apostle Paul said, this scale goes all the way to the bottom, and this scale has no weight whatsoever. He said, knowing Christ is, is is surpassing every other Thing. why would the apostle Paul put such a high value on knowing Christ why did he put such a high value there well I, I would submit to you uh, that it was because he got to know God listen to these verses from Hebrews 10 therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, when we read that, we understand that it's saying we can come right into the presence of God and we rejoice in that and that's all great. Put yourself in the mind of Paul raised in the strictness of the Jewish religion before the temple fell down. There is imagery here that goes right back to that temple. And if you remember your Old Testament and the law, the, the temple would say it'd be a big room like this, and then, uh, and then outside there was an area, the courtyard. But right here, if you imagine a, a, a room about this big, and in here was, was the, uh, the ark, with the, with the angels, with their wings spread. And how many times a year did somebody come into this room? One time. And who was it? The high priest. And he brought in blood once a year on the annual day of atonement. One guy, one time a year. But the Apostle Paul said, now that I know Jesus Christ, He, I can come right into the holiest he's talking about this room as as an image of the presence of God. That's what it was on earth. God made himself known here, but he, he wasn't here completely. He was in heaven, he was in the whole world, but he made himself known. The Apostle Paul said, I can go right into God's very presence because of what Jesus Christ has done. And you have to remember that that's what Paul was after his whole life. He was trying to to earn favor with God by doing all of these deeds, and and now somebody comes along and says, look, you can't do any good deeds to earn favor with God. You're a sinner. And so Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid for your sin, and if you will believe in Christ, God will take your sin away and you can come right into the very presence of God. That's what Paul had been after and after and after his whole life, and now he gets it. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. You see, I realize that the people around you in the world are not seeking God. But they're seeking the things only God can bring. And so they're very much like the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, that was his name before he came to faith in Christ, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked letters or, or letters of approval. To the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that's a reference to Christianity, whether men or women, he might bring them bound, that's in chains, to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, he wasn't saying Lord because he thought it was God. He was saying, Lord, like you're obviously somebody big and important. So who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go to the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and, with his, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, Ananias, go to Paul and share the gospel of Christ with him. Paul was not looking for Jesus Christ He was looking for his followers to kill them. He did not know that he needed Christ. But he wanted to know God. He wanted the things that God could bring to his life. And look what happened in verse 23. Apostle Paul comes to faith in Christ. He starts preaching. Look at verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him do you realize that was an early experience in his christian life it didn't take years for it to develop so acts chapter 9 is the very beginning of paul's walk with the lord we get to philippians 3 it's about 25 or 30 years later he's been walking with the lord for 25 or 30 years and he looks back and he looks at the stuff of life and he thinks about the fact that he was a highly respected teacher. He was, a, you know, a, a sort of a civil authority in the sense that he was trying to bring people to justice according to how he understood the Old Testament law. He, he, he had money, he had, he had uh, you know, uh, status, and he had education. And he looks at all of that after 25 or 30 years, and he said, it's garbage. It's garbage in comparison with knowing God through Jesus Christ it has no value why did he think that after all those years it was because first of all he understood how personal the relationship was with God for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba Father the Apostle Paul being raised a Jew worshiped God at a distance because only the high priest could go in and only the other priests could offer sacrifices he worshiped God at a distance but when he believed in Christ as his savior he came into a personal relationship with God so personal that the scripture says the word Abba which means something like daddy a term of endearment he came to know how personal it was to know Christ as His Savior. Secondly, He came to know how precious it was. Verse uh, Romans chapter eight says, "The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God." I didn't realize this till a few years ago, but but it just dawned on me like a bright light. I I I am not confident of heaven because of me. I am confident of heaven because the Holy Spirit is inside saying, you're a child of God. And so when I consider the potential of dying, I may have fear about the way in which it will happen, but I have no fear of the moment after it happens. Because the Holy Spirit is inside. Boy, that is precious. That is precious when you get a terminal diagnosis or when you get a Maybe terminal diagnosis. I am the Lord's. He is mine. Number three, he understood how permanent that relationship with God was. Hebrews 7 says, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, all the way to the, to the extreme, to those who come to God through him, since he lives to make intercession for them. Our security, the security of our salvation does not depend on us. It's not us hanging on to God for all we're worth. It's God hanging on to us. And not just hanging on, but hanging on because Christ is there interceding, that is praying for us. When the devil might accuse us, he he prays for us. He also understood how powerful our salvation is. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, the Apostle Paul said, I can come right into God's throne room and ask for the things that I need. He also understood how peaceful it was, or is. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Every Christian sins, some more than others. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not giving you approval. I'm just saying it's normal. First, John says we sin, and he says what we should do is confess our sin. And when we confess, he cleanses us. But there's a great encouragement in this verse because Jesus is not in heaven angry with us for sinning. He's in heaven advocating for us because he understands our weakness. And so that gives us peace when we do sin So that we don't have to constantly wonder about the condition of our soul. Look back at Philippians 3 8, please. Paul uses a, a really odd construction in the Greek language when he starts this verse. He's so excited and overjoyed about knowing the Lord as he turns from, I used to have confidence in the flesh, but then I I came to faith in Christ. And here's why it's so valuable. At the beginning of verse 8, the New King James reads, Yet indeed, in Greek it reads something like this, But indeed, therefore, at least even. What in the world? Um. In English, it's considered poor form to write a bunch of a bunch of uh, uh, particles like that. But in Greek, what it does is it stacks it up, and it's sort of like, "I'm really serious here." That's what he's doing, and he says, "I'm I'm really serious that." that when I look at the rest of life, I see it as rubbish. I don't don't see value when I compare it to knowing Christ. Now again, he's not saying we should all sell everything we have and, and, and live poor. He's not saying that. But he's saying is the real value is in Christ. And he uses the word that's translated in the New King James, rubbish, to describe it. And really, that's too nice of a word. Because that word either means Like the King James translates it, dung, or what the animals leave in the yard. Or it means the stuff you throw away that's not good enough to eat off the table. In my parlance, that would be gristle, or peelings, or that sort of thing. And so he's really talking, he's using a word that's very intensive about garbage, and he says, the stuff of life doesn't matter in comparison to knowing Christ. I was greatly challenged by this verse this week. How important is the stuff of life to me? Jesus put it this way, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Now, if you've come to faith in Christ, you're not going to lose that and lose your salvation because you hang on to the stuff of life. I understand that. If you're not a believer in Christ today, you need to ask yourself, is there some of the stuff of life that is keeping me from coming to Christ? Am am I clinging to something as so important that I won't believe in Christ? Because if you are, you're going to lose your soul. When this life comes to an end, you're going to die and go to hell under the judgment of God. But but if you have come to the point where you've said, no, no, I have to believe in Christ, and and you've let go uh, of your pride or whatever and believed in Christ, but now as a Christian, you need to look at that stuff of life and say, how important is that stuff? How important is that stuff? Paul believed that knowing Christ was incomparably valuable because it brought him relationship with God. Number two, Paul believed that knowing Christ was incomparably valuable because he gained the righteousness of God. Look at verse 9, please. He said, I count the stuff of life rubbish that I may be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith before Paul knew Christ his greatest desire was to walk righteously according to the law but his reality was one of constant failure and this is a personal testimony from him in talking about trying to live up to God's standard what shall we say then is the law sin? certainly not on the contrary, I would, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was supposed to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. One commentator I read this week had an interesting perspective here, and he might be right. When the Apostle Paul talked about the law, he said, As to the righteousness found in the law, I was blameless. He says that earlier in this passage. He didn't say I was sinlessly perfect. But he said, as to the righteousness in the law. Now, how would people have judged him on the righteousness in the law? They would have judged him on the outside. And what is the sin he's talking about right here? The sin of coveting, which means to want something that somebody else has. Where does that sin mostly happen? On the inside, in the mind and in the heart. And is it possible that the Apostle Paul was scrupulously righteous on the outside and as he walked through his life before he came to faith in Christ, people said, wow, look at Paul. And he thought, yeah, look at me. But inwardly he was going, I want that. And I want that. Why can't I have that? The Apostle Paul was trying to be righteous, trying to be righteous, trying to connect with God, and he couldn't do it nobody can and that's why Christ had to die for our sin the very thing Paul wanted which was to live a righteous life he couldn't do and that's why he rejoiced so much in this just as David in the Old Testament describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now there's a couple of words there that might trip you up, and one of them is the word impute. The word impute means to hold against. And he says, the man to whom God does not hold his sins against him, that man is blessed. When does God stop holding our sins against us? When they are taken away by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God poured the punishment for our sin onto Christ. And when I believe in Christ, God takes our sins away, just as if this might be your sin. God takes your sin away from you, and and He takes it away, the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, and He stops holding your sin against. And what is the result of that? That man is blessed. You know what the word blessed means in the Old Testament? It means happy happy why are people happy when their sins are taken away can anybody tell me (laughs) because it feels good when God lifts that burden off of you, and you think I'm not a sinner anymore I'm a saint I'm on my way to heaven you think yes and that's the way the apostle Paul was he was trying and working and working to be good enough to go to heaven to good enough to relate to God and he couldn't do it he kept failing and when he came to faith in Christ, God took that sin away, and he, went, and he thought, "Wow, this is what I've been after. Paul believed that knowing Christ was incomparably valuable because he gained the righteousness of God. And lastly, oh, well, excuse me let, me, let me just put this up here for you. The path to happiness is righteousness. The path to happiness is righteousness. God never tells us to pursue happiness in his word. He never tells us to pursue joy. He tells us to pursue righteousness. And when we think right and we act right, we feel right. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Man, I came into right relationship with God and I feel good. Number three, Paul believed that knowing Christ was incomparably valuable because it brought him the power of the resurrection of Christ. Look with me again at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead this truth is not at first read one could say well is Paul questioning whether or not he'll be resurrected as in maybe he'll get to heaven maybe he won't No, he's not talking about that at all he's saying I want to I want to get the power of the resurrection in my life I want to know it and it comes from this passage here in Romans chapter 6 do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is not talking about the baptism that we have here in our baptistry where we put people under the water. It's talking about the real spiritual baptism that's spoken of here. By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and been made to drink into one spirit. When we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit takes us and puts us into, that is, the word baptism literally means immerse in the Greek language, he immerses us into the body of Christ. Well, one of the great benefits of that is spoken of here. Do you not know that as many of us as were immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. When we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit takes us and puts us into the body of Christ, and our identification with him becomes so close that the Scripture says our our old man, our, our person is put to death spiritually and raised to a newness of life spiritually, and... That is why we are able to live righteously. That's what this verse is talking about. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And you know, this scripture doesn't just say our sin nature was put to death. It says we were spiritually put to death and then raised to a newness of life so that we become a new creation in Christ. And in Philippians 3.10, the Apostle Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He didn't say I'm trying to get the resurrection. I'm trying to know the power of that resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul had spent his life trying to do right, and the result was this. I know that in me, in my flesh, no good thing dwells. To will is present with me, but to perform, I do not find. And so he said, you know, I'm the problem. I can't do it, but if I believe in Christ, my sin nature will be crucified, and I will be raised to a newness of life, and there will be power for the Christian life. Paul valued knowing Christ because through that knowledge he could obtain real Spiritual power, spiritual growth. The phrases, fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, and attaining to the resurrection, are all phrases that refer to Paul's responsibility to take advantage of the spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. He said, I have been put to death and brought to newness of life, and now I want to use what has happened. That's what these verses in Romans 6, as he continues on, are talking about. Reckon yourself to be dead, but alive, dead to sin, but alive to God. You see, God tells us that we have a position in Christ, but also a practice. When I believed in Christ, I died, a new life was raised, but now I have a responsibility to see that and to act on it. That is to reckon it. I reckon so, they say down south. The word reckon is an accounting term, which means to to look at it and say, this is true. In other words, as a Christian, there's a temptation to say something like this. The topic of Romans 6 is sin and righteousness. And the temptation is to say, I can't help myself. I just keep sinning. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He said, when you believed in Christ, you died and were raised to a newness of life. That is the fact now, Christian, you have to decide that it is so, which means you have to look at sin and say no, and to righteousness and say yes, that's what this passage says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Years ago, President Reagan's wife Nancy created a campaign against drugs And the campaign was, just say no to drugs. And it failed horribly. Because people couldn't say no. Because they looked in themselves and they said, I can't do it. But Christian, what you need to understand is you have been crucified. Your sin nature is put to death. You've been raised with a newness of life. You can say no to sin. The problem is we don't really want to that bad. Because there are certain sins we kind of like. He says, do not let sin reign. If God gives us a command, it is possible. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its desires. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. God says, you want to know the path to righteous living? First of all, say, no, I will not sin. Second of all, put yourself in the place of righteousness. You know the old joke? A fellow got his nose broken three places and his friend said, you should stop going to those places. Knew an alcoholic once who said, you know, on my way home, my habit has been to stop at this place and have a beer, or many. And he quit drinking. But he said, every time I drive by that place, I want to pull in there and have a beer. And his pastor said, get a different route home. Get a different route. Do not present your members To unrighteousness, your members are talking about the parts of your body, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. Put yourself in a different place. Cut that service off your TV. Put the guard on your computer. Take that stuff out of your house. Don't go to those meetings. Don't hang out with those people. Whatever it is, stop presenting yourself to unrighteousness and start presenting yourself to righteousness, and you'll be surprised at how much righteousness comes. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. He says it cannot control you unless you are letting it control you. My wife said I needed to clean up the house this week. (laughs) And I said, no, I don't. Grandkids are coming over again. Why should I bother? <laughs> I'm thankful that my house has never been that dirty. <laughs> that's a picture from the TV show Hoarders. That's that's somebody's real house where they really live. And so's that. That's somebody's real kitchen. Somebody's real living room. No doubt, some of this stuff is is actually garbage, but some of this stuff had value at one time. But no matter what it was when it began, it overtook their life. And they've come to a place where they need to say, you know what, that stuff's got to go. And as Christians, we have to daily. You know, the Apostle Paul said at one point, he said, I die daily. We've got to constantly look at the stuff of life and say, has that become more valuable than knowing Christ? Have I exchanged the things that God wants to give me for some of the stuff of life? I've got to constantly look at that and say, God, help me not to. We do live in the world. We have to eat. We have to live. We have to have jobs. All that stuff. But the question we have to ask today is, what, what really is valuable to me? What am I pursuing? What am I after?